Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. Coming up, learning from indigenous voices in Greenfield, tasting the king and queen of wines in Italy, and live music from local hero band Cloud Belly. But first, these thugs and radical left monsters have just indicated the 45th president of the United States of America. I was tempted to say in a very Trumpian uh, impersonation, but decided not to. But that former president Donald Trump wrote on his Truth Social platform, misspelling, indicted. This is the indictment that has been uh, a couple weeks in the offing and joining us in the fabulous 413 is Jennifer Taub, a legal scholar, advocate whose writing focuses on follow the money matters, promoting transparency and opposing corruption, graduate of Yale and Harvard, which I've heard of uh, that are pretty good schools, and a uh, professor of law at the Western New England University School of Law. This Manhattan grand jury has indicted the former president in connection with $130,000 in hush money. Professor, is this a good direction for the country to be going in right now, depending on who you ask? Politically, they have uh, many minds about this indictment of Donald Trump. So I am lucky that I only have one mind to keep track of um, with many different chambers um, in which I file away bits of information and analysis. And as you know, I follow the area of white collar crime. And I have also been following the rise and maybe fall of Donald John Trump. I think any day where the rule of law is supported is a good day for America. And I also think it's great that people are expressing their opinions, their opposition, their support, whatever people want to do. I mean, that's why we have a First Amendment. All of that said, I think this is it's just the beginning. And I, you know, as I mentioned before, if it was good enough to charge Michael Cohen and put him in federal prison for some of the underlying activities that we believe led to the indictment this week in New York, uh, I think it's good enough um, for the person who told him to do this stuff. Uh, I think that it's, it's a bad time that somebody held this man accountable after years and years and years of legal violations, which are documented and only which rose to the level of criminal charges when his businesses were convicted in December. Now, you know, now accountability is closing from his eponymous business organizations to the man himself. And that's how law should be. Some people who are critical of this indictment are saying there's no there there. This is a, a kind of white collar crime. Who cares? He paid off this hush money. You posted a link to other times, uh, a survey of past New York felony prosecutions for falsifying business records. This isn't something unique to this particular case. This is something that New York has used many times over the years to bring up charges. That is true. And it, it's a fantastic source, a source that I, I trust. I try not to link, um, I try not to link to, you know, to random research. But this was, um, this for folks who are listening, justsecurity.org, which has really fantastic writers, put up, it's somewhat lengthy, it's a 24-page memo. But the first couple of pages are an overview. And this was written by people I trust, uh, Siobhan Wyatt, Norm Eisen, and Ryan Goodman. And this was on March 21st, so about 10 days ago. And the title is Survey of Past New York Felony Prosecutions for Falsifying Business Records. And, you know, in reverse chronological order, we have, you know, ordinary people who were charged with this, you know, October of 2022, 
and we're going all the way back in this, you know, this overview survey to 2010, um, this memo to the disposition. So it will say the name of the case, the date of the indictment, what the charges were, um, and ultimately what the outcome was. And, you know, this is this is like a 24 page document. So to the extent that people want to say that this never happens um, and that this is some sort of let's dust off the, you know, the law books and find something, you know, to use, a you know, in a, as a political club against him. It's, just, it's simply not true. And in fact, it's the opposite. You know, were the DA to look the other way that it would be saying, you know, some people are above the law. Speaking with Professor Jennifer Taub, who is uh, an author and a professor at Western New England University School of Law, the former Massachusetts GOP chair Jim Lyons told the Politico playbook, quote, the party in power is politicizing the legal system, trying to hunt down a leading figure of an out of power. Are you drinking beer right now? It's not a beer. I'm sorry. I'm cracking open a, a, a Diet Coke. It's actually a Z, uh you know, what is this called? You know, Coke Zero. Oh, yeah. Sorry to make that, no, don't that worry. noise. But I'm just a little bit I, I'm jealous if you were having a beer at this time. But I'll, ah, I'll no, be drinking. I'm not a beer drinker. I'll be drinking wine on the show in just a minute. The party in power politicizing <laughs> the legal system, trying to hunt down a leading figure of an out of power party. It's amazing. I think it's a real grave danger to our republic. And I think what, of course, is so big about this is that it is unprecedented in U.S. history that a former president would be indicted on these criminal charges. But it is not constitutionally prohibited, as I think, especially when he was in office, some people seemed to think. Is that, am I correct in that assessment? I think you're asking me if you're correct in that last piece of it. So I'll start there. Yeah. There's no known constitutional prohibition on a state or federal prosecutor, you know, a local state or federal prosecutor indicting a sitting president. But since it's never been tried or tested before, we don't know. That said, the um, Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel had a memo on file saying it was against uh, departmental policy. So yeah, he's not no longer a sitting president. So uh, that's a fact. Um, some of his supporters may disagree, but you know, he is not the president. And in a in addition to that, you also mention um, this argument that somehow this is trying to, you know, target or attack a political rival that the part, you know, so-called party in power. There's a lot wrong with that statement. Number one, Alvin Bragg is an elected district attorney for Manhattan County. He was elected by the people who vote in that area to enforce all of New York's criminal laws in his jurisdiction, period. Separately, the party in power, I'm not sure what that means. We have a Democrat um, in the White House who has nothing to do with and is not even answering questions about these charges. We have um, House of Representatives, which is right now um, being led by Republicans. The Senate has a majority of senators who are Democrats. And, and, and the House and Senate have nothing to do with the charging decisions of a local prosecutor in Manhattan. And, you know, my view is if you want to make criminal charging decisions in Manhattan, you should run for office. And then you too can decide whether someone is above the law or whether they should be held accountable if a jury finds probable cause of a crime. I'll say that. And then finally, the projection. I don't want to live in a world where someone trumps up, let's say, and stirs up crowds to say, lock her up, lock her up, lock her up. But that party leader was 
and is Donald Trump. He's still leading chants, you know, against Hillary Clinton, saying she should be locked up for God knows what now. Must have been the the email server. And and I just I just want us to remember that the, these folks are projecting onto anyone who has power over Donald Trump their own motives that they so clearly expressed when they were chanting, lock her up. Speaking with Jen Taub, professor of law at Western New England University School of Law about the Manhattan grand jury indicting Trump in connection with $130,000 of hush money paid to porn star Stormy Daniels, who uh, received the money in the final months of the 2016 election to keep quiet about an alleged affair with the former president. You are a lawyer, and I know that I could tell from some of your social media, including your statement, this is a dream come true, uh, when you were sleeping when the indictment came through yesterday, uh, that this is something that you think is is actually good. There are people that I think this is bad for the republic, that is not the right direction to go. But as a lawyer, if you had to mount a defense of Donald Trump for what we know about the indictment so far, what would you mount as a defense for what Donald Trump is being accused of, we think, in this indictment? So because I don't know what he's being accused of, I'm going to do, as you say, um, try to suppose. But the first thing as a defense lawyer I would do is the procedural maneuver. So as soon as the arraignment happens, you know, and that involves the whole booking process, the fingerprinting, the photo, and so on, and then appearing before the judge and arranging for bail or not getting bail, I imagine there'll be bail and it will probably, I don't know if there'll be a bond or if we'll just be on his own recognizance, you know, all that kind of stuff. Once that's done, his lawyers are entitled to file a motion trying to dismiss or minimize the indictment. And the grounds upon which to do that are right in New York law. In your, you, What you're doing is you're essentially challenging the sufficiency of the evidence, arguing that the grand jury did not have enough evidence to indict, you know, that it was insufficient. You also can, there's some defect in the process. And so that's what I would obviously do as a lawyer. Mm. That's what you should do when you're defending somebody. Then from there, um, if that is unsuccessful, um, I suppose, I guess what I would do is, you know, defend him in court when that comes. But the, the problem he faces is, you know, he doesn't, he, the kind of lawyers he wants are not court lawyers. They're street lawyers and they're TV lawyers, right? He needs, at this point, he knows what he did. Um, and he knows what the potential liability is. He is trying to make this a street brawl. He's trying to make this a civil war. He's trying to make, he's trying to win in the court of public opinion and win in his own mind, right? So he, th that's what's more important to him. And he intends to run for office and win the primary regardless of this case, or I expect the other criminal indictments that will be made against him. So I wouldn't be hired to be his lawyer unless I were willing to do the television spin. And I would not be able to be his lawyer unless I were willing to represent a client who's trying to stir up violence and hate. So I wouldn't really be a good lawyer for him, uh -huh. but that's what's going on. That's what will go on. I'm friends with John Pucci, who is a former federal uh, prosecutor, and he has taught me that federal charges aren't going to be brought in such a public way unless the federal government is 99.9% .9 sure that they're going to get a conviction. These are state charges. Do we run the risk of these charges being brought up and Donald Trump is acquitted? How damaging would that be? Okay, so justice, I, got, I, got to, I have to say some things. It, this is not about you, but I think it's about you know our whole um, 
the way our worry uh, gets out there and the way we have not given District Attorney Alvin Bragg his due. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's because he's a black man. I don't know if it's because he is a local prosecutor. But let's remember that Alvin Bragg is the very first person on this planet to secure a conviction, to even indict and secure a jury verdict against one of Donald Trump's businesses. In fact, two of them, the, you know, the Trump Corporation and the Trump Payroll Corporation. And let's also remember that the charges he used to secure that conviction are likely the very same charges we're going to see against Donald, although related to different facts. So, it, you know, I think that he can secure a conviction. And I also think, let me say this other piece of it, that my friend Jesse Eisinger wrote this book, which is fabulous, called The Chicken Club. And it's about how prosecutors are supposed to not be afraid. You know, if, if you believe that you can sustain a verdict, you know, that you can prove these, if you have evidence to prove this beyond a reasonable doubt, and you think a conviction can survive, can survive appeal, then you bring it to the grand jury and all they have to find is probable cause. I have confidence in Alvin Bragg. He has been successful. He really, really did a good job in keeping the fact that this indictment was going to drop secret. I mean, I have been told by many sources just the day before the grand, and I'm sure you'd heard this, you know, on the news and elsewhere, the grand jury was taking a three week break. Right. We all thought they had not voted on this. I literally was napping <laughs> when we found out there was an indictment. I was like taking a late afternoon nap because I'd been up late working the night before. No one expected this. And that's a credit to him. I completely trust his judgment. Jen Taub is a professor of law at Western New England University School of Law, the author of Big Dirty Money, always looking at follow the money matters and promoting transparency and opposing corruption. Thank you for uh, filling us in on all this. And as if and when more indictments come down, we'd love to have you on again. I would love this. And, you know, keep in mind, it's going to be a long spring, summer, fall and beyond. This is just the beginning of our uh, a beautiful friendship, as they say. <laughs> Thank you, Jen. Thank you. Coming up, learning from indigenous voices in Greenfield with Jennifer Lee and live music from local hero band Cloud Belly. But up next, we'll taste the king and queen of wines in Italy in the Wine Thunderdome. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. What's this I hear about not being able to discuss prices? prices. Can you believe it? I can't. I just, I'm learning all these rules. Did you have to bleep us out after the fact? No, that's when I got in trouble because I didn't bleep it out before. And then I was like, well, okay, now I'm going to find out creative workarounds, mm. how to talk about price without mentioning a price. What have you come up with so far? Well, we can describe the different uh, founding fathers and how many of them there are. <laughs> I heard you doing this. I've been in no way informed as to what denomination uh, Harriet Tubman is. She's not on anything yet, but yeah. there's movement and mm. i think it's probably going to happen that she would be on a bill that is 19 plus one am i allowed to say that, that <laughs> how, how far do i have to put I, cover, I cover your ears everybody i didn't know this was a thing we can't say price yeah on and oh. public radio i guess oh. yeah so we have to say one hamilton and a and a lincoln and a lincoln right There's hamilton lincoln. and lincoln are in a lincoln town car <laughs> driving through well, marola matthew mcconaughey's driving i've been driving a lincoln since Long before anybody paid me to drive one. All right. <laughs>
right, all right, all right. Okay. The point is we're here to discuss the merits of the wine, not right. the merits mm-hmm. of the price of the wine. Mm-hmm. Right. And we will tell you that it won't break the bank, but I will try to allude to you about how much of your bank it will break without... Exa- it's part of the fun for me now. How <laughs> to skirt the, the rules. What if we use euros? Is that like... <laughs> we say things I don't know. Euros? I don't know. We have once again entered the wine thunderdome here in the wine bunker. Deep below State Street Fruit Store, Deli Wines and Spirits in Northampton, with the wine sun and the Yankee Sippa. The concept, two wines enter, one wine leaves. Two men enter, one man leaves! The concept that you created, wine sun. Thank you, I always uh, enjoy getting credit. <laughs> credit is due, and I'll tell you that the other uh, the other wine stores, are they're liking being part of the Wine Thunderdome, so this could turn into a thing where we have a, we really get all the stores together, everybody brings in a wine, and we, uh, yeah. we duke it out. I think that would be a lot of fun. Not that old wine. I want the new stuff. That's right. No more 1966. Let's splurge. Bring us some fresh wine. The freshest you've got this year. No more of this old stuff. We, oui, monsieur. There's not a, a week that goes by that I don't actually think of that movie. What are we drinking in the wine Thunderdome at State Street today? Last time we got to talk to you about a month ago, we talked about one of the most renowned grapes of France. People don't refer to the noble grapes of Burgundy the way they do the noble grapes of, say, Bordeaux. But we are sort of keeping in that line of thought, and we're going to Piedmont. Play into your uh, your ego here, right? Pie Monty. Pie Monty. We're, we're yeah. hanging out in the Pie Monty area. This is the king and queen of Italian wines, both made from Nebbiolo. Of course, we're talking about Barolo and Barbaresco. Which one gets to be the queen and which one gets to be the king and wine? You labeled them. Conveniently labeled them for you. Yeah. We've got uh, Queen Barb. As in Barbaresco and King Barry. And we got nothing to be As in King Barolo. Why do we gender these? In this era, in this day and age. Well, it comes from the Royal House of Savoy. In 1850, uh, they started making Barolo to honor the Marchese Barolo. And before that, Barolo or Nebbiolo was made as a sweet carbonated wine. And then they, someone had the idea of like, let's let this ferment just a little bit longer. Uh, and it became very fashionable uh, with the House of Savoy, which the, which was the royal house of Northern Italy and all of it, Italy for a long time. And so it kind of had uh, a head start on Barbaresco. Barbaresco really didn't get its start until about uh, 1894. But there are some legends that many Barolo producers would drive a little bit north and buy their grapes from Barbaresco. So, the um, queen was always the one who was ruling the roost. Right, so when you try these wines, they're quite different despite being made probably within 15 or 20 kilometers of one another. And from the same exact grape. And it might feel more feminine, might be a little bit more agreeable. We'll see. Not that being feminine means you're agreeable by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, have you ever met you? Yeah. (laughs) Unfortunately, many times. (laughs) Every one of my incarnations is better and better. Barolo is known as the uh, king of wine and the wine of kings. If Barolo is the king of wines, what is the king of beers? Obviously, they advertise that way, right? No other brewer makes the king of beers. After all, this Bud's for you. Disclaimer, that's not really how I feel. I had a Budweiser, I just remembered this, like for the first time in probably like over a decade, a month ago. And I was like, wow, this is terrible. uh... I'm really not in the mood to talk about beer right now because I just read an article about powdered beer. Just add water. Okay. And I'm not kidding. Will you be carrying that here at State Street? They were like, why would we import glass, fill it with our water, and send it somewhere else when they could just fill the glass with their water wherever they are? Because, you know, the water has nothing to do with the flavor of the beer. But maybe it'll make your beer better if you have, like, East Hampton has, like, award-winning water. So maybe all of a sudden your King of Beers Budweiser is going to be better. 
Wouldn't that be something? Stephen Wright has a joke. I bought some powdered water, but I don't know what to add. <laughs> okay, do we start with the king or the queen? The Barolo or the Barbaresco, both from Neviolo, both from Piemonte in but, Italy. So here's a funny thing about the uh, so-called king and queen of... Now I can't... Beer? Now I can't get Piemonte out of my head. I was like, at The king and queen of wine from this area. The king, you would think is going to be this big, sort of burly, brawny wine. And it does have a huge tannic structure backing it up. But recent vintages, and I mean maybe the last six, seven vintages, what I've noticed is a much lighter style of wine than what I sort of mentally think of for Barolo. Mm -hmm. And Barbaresco has been presenting much more powerfully. So we've sort of gender-reversed our roles here mm -hmm. with these wines. So I think we're going to actually start with the Barolo and see okay. how it no, goes. I think that's a good idea. One thing you'll notice about Nebbiolo, or, or Barolo, is that it, it has this reputation, this huge, muscular wine. You look at it, it's so the color is so pale on it. Yeah, it, it looks it's, like it's a, it could be Pinot Noir. It's a garnet. It would pass yeah, the Pinot Noir test. Yeah, it would pass the Pinot Noir test. The hallmark smell, the telltale smell, and the giveaway smell, if you're ever doing a blind tasting of Nebbiolo, is roses with violets in the background, typically. So um, we have this really wonderful floral note. Definitely like, a, like candy. a cherry, like a cherry yeah. cough drop thing yeah, going on. A Luden's wild cherry that. cough drop. When we popped the corks on these wines about an hour ago, I did the thing you do in the restaurant when they hand you the cork and you smell the yeah. cork. And I, I smelled the cork and I was like, oh, this is so good. <laughs> like, I can already tell how much I love this wine. Sometimes it's fun to put that cork in your mouth when the waiter hands it to you. <laughs> Pretend like you don't know what you're doing. Just by the end of it all. See how they react. Speaking of the jerk. He doesn't realize he's dealing with sophisticated people here. Well, this is phenomenal. You're looking at this wine like this is light-bodied, smells like roses, and then you taste it and you'll see why Barolo is called the king of this region and why you get the huge muscular, I want to eat only fatty salami, hard cheese type oh, things. Yeah. This wine is, it's perfect. such a juxtaposition, but yeah. it, it is perfect. The appearance of it is so light and delicate and lovely, but man, that tannic structure is really powerful. It feels like the tannic structure reminds me of like the dusty uh, casing of a salami of some sort, you know what I mean? And it then makes me think, well, I really just want to. That's really interesting too, because a lot of people, obviously Nebbia in Italian means fog. Nebbiolo is thought to be the name of the grape from the fog because the best vineyards rise are above the fog level. There is another theory that it's called uh, Nebbiolo because right before harvest, the grapes themselves get this um, natural powdered quality to them. And that's another sign that the grapes are ripe and ready to pick. So that's another um, key, like nature's giveaway that things are ready to go. I'm sure birds appear in the vineyard. Um, Why do birds suddenly appear? Because the grapes are ripe. Just like me. Just they long are, to you're be. You're a crow. How nice. <laughs> More of a carpenter. <laughs> this Barolo is made by whom? So this is not some small, tiny producer. This is a company that we do a ton of business with. This is from Giacomo Ascari. Uh, Giacomo Finame. Giacomo Finame. This is called Ascari Barolo, and this is their There's three... nothing scary about it. There's nothing no. scary about it. Knew that was coming. Right. They call this their three vineyard blend Barolo. Mm. Hamilton, 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 Lincoln, Washington, Washington, Washington. <laughs> wow. Nailed it. That's just the way I express myself when I really like something. 37 chickens were walking down the road and they were talking about what kind of wine you want to have tonight. Can we all chip in a dollar? No, nope, you ruined it. Uh. So we've chased the king, the Barolo, from Ascari. Did we chase him or taste him? We chased him and mm -hmm. taste him. We're going to chase him with the queen, Barbaresco, also 
from Piemonte, Piedmont, or Piemonte in northern Italy, yeah. made from the Nebbiolo grape. Yes, specifically right around Alba. So Barbaresco is northeast of Alba, and uh, Barolo is, the region is southwest of Alba. And again, like, they're actually corners of these two regions that are literally like two or three kilometers apart. They're, they're almost touching. And same grape, and yet same already grape. very different on yeah. the nose. And that goes back to what I was talking about, that lower, the lower elevation of Barbaresco. And the river play a role in how this wine is picked sooner because it ripens sooner. We're talking about the difference between Greenfield and Northampton here. Right. Or, as we used to like to joke about, Hatfield and Hadley Asparagus. Yeah. What's the difference? Well, here we're exploring the difference of things that are that close together. And like you said, the nose already alludes to a totally different one. The color as well. There's not as much of the rose thing, and there's not as much of the Luden's Wild Cherry thing. There is a little bit of a cough drop thing, but it's more of like a cough drop that's probably actually good for you, as opposed to just filled with sugar. Possibly a niece. Or a nephew. And this Barbaresco is beefy, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Tobacco, yeah. I'm getting on this one a lot. The tannins are still there, though, like the other one, where you can feel that there is that sweaters on your teeth and mm-hmm. tongue. A little bit of a stickiness. That's tannins. Like that. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> These wines just really couldn't be more different. All right, the Wine Thunderdome. We have got the king and the queen of Piemonte, of Nebbiolo the Grape, the Ascari Barolo, and the Villa Monsignore. Barbaresco, wow. the king and the queen. The Barbaresco, the queen, Hamilton, Hamilton, Lincoln. <laughs> so there are more founding fathers in the uh, king than there are in the queen. What is your vote? Two wines enter, one wine leaves. Sipa. I go with the Barolo. I think it's in this case it's more elegant. I wish there was room for qualifications. You know, where you're like, well, it depends. If I was having X, I would want this or yeah. Without any parameters, I have to go with the Barolo. The decision is unanimous. The Barolo wins. (laughs) It is referred to as the king. And if you're playing cards, so usually a king is going to win over a queen because sexism is in everything. (laughs) And it is here as well. The king wins. (laughs) And if we had brought the knave, it would have beat him too. You like that? That was the old school name for a jack. Yeah. Mm. All right. Pick that up. I picked that up. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sure. I, I wasn't sure how worldly you are, Monty. I work for New England Public Media. I'm really worldly now, everybody. I'm really happy that your cadence of speech hasn't changed yet. Yeah. You know, I thought maybe you would get indoctrinated. Well, there's different cadences depending on who you want to, you know, be emulating as a public radio host. There's no, more of the. I just no, don't want to nod off while I'm listening. I've been to listening you. for many, many, many years, and uh, it's the same. I've been listening for many years, and I've noticed a change. There is the so. Is there going to be an upspeak kind of conversationalist? No, don't. Thing no with upspeak. Some of the reporters. And no then upspeak. there's the classic Ira Glass. We're in the wine bunker. Diva Stacey Food Star, Darren I'm Ari Shapiro. I like Ari Shapiro. <laughs> I do too. No I, problem I like with them. Him. All. Don't get me and wrong. And then there's my absolute favorite, which this guy had to have come from commercial radio because of the way that he does it. Kai Rizdahl. Oh, I, I love it. First of all, that guy gets to talk about money all the time, but I've been listening to be like, does he talk about prices? Because I can't. I don't know. But he always does. Hey, the markets have collapsed today and everyone's <laughs> lost all their money. This is Marketplace. <laughs> With like a huge grin on his face, you know he's doing it like that. And I'm like, wow, your 401k is now a 201k, yeah. but this guy's psyched. No, I'm all about Aisha Roscoe right now. Yeah. I'm loving that. Right. Love her. I love Sylvia Poggioli. Yeah. But she's retiring. She's retiring. Yeah. I listened to that interview. I'm all, I'm just me. I feel like I'm the Lucky. car talk. I'm the car talk guys because they'd be like, Terry Gross like will roll over in her grave even though she's not dead when I say it, but this is... <laughs> 
Public radio. Oh, you know. car talk. Boston, baby. Yeah. People love the Boston guys. First of all, get yourself a new car. <laughs> that thing's a piece of junk. We don't need another piece. Coming up later in the show, live music from local hero band Cloud Belly. Up next, learning from Indigenous Voices with Jennifer Lee, who will be at the Lava Center in Greenfield this Sunday. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. This Sunday at the Lava Center on Main Street in Greenfield, Indigenous Voices from the Connecticut River Valley of Massachusetts. It's a 10-part series of short videos about Native life, past and present. It's produced by the Nolambika Project and Jennifer Lee, who is from the Northern Narragansett Tribe in collaboration with Turning Tide Films and directed by Robbie Lepser. And joining me is Jennifer Lee, who will be part of this screening on Sunday at the Lava Center on Main Street in Greenfield. Uh, Jennifer, tell me about, a little bit about this production, Indigenous Voices, from the Connecticut River Valley of Massachusetts. I joined the Nolambika Project Board, and there was a request for a movie for the area schools about the local Indigenous history and presence. And I've done educational programs at schools for the last 30 years, teaching the kids the history that I had been learning and really got excited to do this project, and Diane Dix of the Nolambika Project was really behind it and really facilitated it, made it happen. And Robbie Lepser, who is a wonderful videographer who does social justice movies, uh, really put his heart into it. And so the basic concept was to hear from Native people. Let's interview some Native folks and hear what they have to say, what's on their minds, um, to kind of address some of the stereotypes that all Americans have about Native people. Uh, they come to us in subtle ways, on on a butter package, on an advertisement, in old Western movies, um, even some of the, the statue on the Mohawk Trail. And uh, the sports mascots. These are all caricatures. And so the idea was, well, let's hear from some local Native people today and hear what's on their minds and give the teachers something about the local history to teach about. And we had some murals made, um, which we're really happy about. We had a mural made of what Turner's Falls looked like pre-contact. Uh, the area was called Peskiomskut. And Robert Peters, a Wampanoag artist, did a wonderful mural, which now hangs in the Montague Town Hall. And then we had another mural made by Deborah Spears Moorhead of a historic account of Pocumtuck people delivering corn to the hungry Connecticut settlers in 50 canoes. This is the kind of history that I think all the kids should be, um, should be able to hear. And we have a lot of links. We have PDFs that go with each little movie. It's a series of short movies, 10 short movies. And with each movie is a PDF that definitions of words that maybe the speakers said, like if someone says Haudenosaunee, uh, in the definitions, it's going to tell you what that means. And so it was really quite a, a collaboration. I love learning about the words that indigenous people used to call the different things in our area, including Connecticut, the name of the river. It may not be the correct pronunciation. Are, is there more of those um, definitions in this project that you'd like to share with Pesky Umskid is one that you've already mentioned? Yes. Okay. So in the PDF, we have a page of different place names. So like you said, Connecticut is indigenous word, meaning the long river. Massachusetts, the hills or the land of the big hill. 
And then there's different places uh, like Wequamps, which is a native name for where what is called Mount Sugarloaf today. And that's a very important place. And that's what one of the murals was made of. Mount Sugarloaf in Deerfield, where people see it, I believe. If I remember correctly, there's a story that uh, surrounding that that has to do with the beaver. Am I correct in that? Yes. And so we also have a link to Marge Bruchak telling that story. There's an audio, five-minute audio of that story. Um, also, we have it written out. And then also, really, the geology that's taught with that story. So, you know, people know uh, about Lake Hitchcock, it's called. Uh, which is a glacier lake, but the story really teaches about that, and it shows how Native people taught their geology, their deep history, through stories. Stories weren't just fanciful entertainment. There's a lot in stories, and the stories of this land are what the children that live here should hear. This Sunday at the Lava Center in Greenfield, it is a 10-part series of short videos, Indigenous Voices from the Connecticut River Valley of Massachusetts, produced by the Nolan Beaker Project and Jennifer Lee, who joins me right now. What will happen with these videos after uh, this uh, event on Sunday at the Lava Center? Will they be made available so that we can all access them uh, after the fact? Yes. At this time, if you go to the Nolan Beaker Project website, there is a pretty quick link to Indigenous Voices, the film series. And they are there for people. It's it's our gift. They're there for everybody. And also with that film series is a 54-page book that you can download for free that has place names, famous Indian people, and also little short booklets on Nipmuc history, Abenaki history, Mohican history. You know, so that people can just up their understanding a little bit about the Native people that are here today. Jennifer Lee from the Northern Narragansett community, working with the Nolambika Project on Indigenous Voices from the Connecticut River Valley of Massachusetts, a 10-part series of short videos about Native life, past and present, directed by Robbie Lepser. And in an event uh, this Sunday, sliding scale donation at the Lava Center on Main Street in Greenfield. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you. Cloudbelly is the musical moniker of the Great Falls-based singer-songwriter Corey Laitman, who is one of the newest artists signed to the renowned local record label Signature Sounds. Their most recent album is Thou Them. Cloudbelly is performing tonight with local bands Moxie and Lux Deluxe at the Drake in Amherst. Corey Laitman, Cloudbelly, joins me in the studio along with guitarist Sam Perry, also from Great Falls. Let's hear a song, Cloudbelly. Thanks, Monty. My pleasure. Well, here's the thing. I have loved being in love with a daydream. My silver tonsilled seven layer smoke screen. Do you catch my meaning, darling? And in the quiet, I have heard the crooked noises that a lie makes. Those thunder in your cap. I've made my mistakes 
I just want a way to name whatever this is. Find me a witness for whatever this is. A needle and a puncture and a mending. I can't comprehend it, darling. How you were there on the porch watching the mist, listening to cricket. In the zero G's of knowing how to fix it Yeah, you were weightless, darling And I'm not asking for forgiveness I just want a way to name whatever this is. Find me a witness for whatever this is. But I'm not gonna wait on your permission. On the ways that I am proud, and I don't want to give my life to wishing on wishes that have been shouting me out. So, honey, I go walking in the morning, I gather what I find to me at night. I've been counting on my dreaming. To help me say goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. That is Cloud Belly. Live Music Friday here in the Fabulous 413. Coming up more with Cloud Belly. We're playing The Drake tonight in Amherst. You're listening to the Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Woo-hoo. That's the sound of Moxie, who is going to be playing the show tonight at the Drake in Amherst, along with Lux Deluxe and the band that joins me in studio right now, Cloud Belly, the musical moniker of Corey Laitman, along with guitar player Sam Perry. We'll talk a little bit after we hear this next song.
so weird to be the only one clapping even Khalees isn't here clapping with me. <laughs> but that Alone is the clapper. I know the sound you clap for yourselves I suppose but that, oh. there we go good that is the clapping of Cloud Belly Corey Laitman <laughs> and Sam Perry my, my neighbors in Turner's Falls Great Falls I don't know if I need to fully disclose that but I figure I might as well um, Corey uh, you are one of the most recent signs to Signature Sounds as somebody 
who uh, were you doing music for a long time before you had that opportunity? I was. Yeah. Yeah, since 20. Well, on stages in front of people, aside from like my high school classmates. Right. Since 2012. Uh huh. So, what, yeah. is that, what does that mean for you uh, on a label like Signature Sounds, which is local but has a big reach and has had launched the careers of, of uh, many artists who people have heard of Josh Ritter, Lake Street Dive, the list goes on and on, Lori McKenna? Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's. It feels like kismet. Like, it feels so serendipitous that um, that Jim Olsen happened to be attending this virtual concert that we put on. During the pandemic? During the pandemic. Jim Olsen, the head of Signature Sounds. Jim yeah. Olsen, the head of Signature Sounds. And then he had a talk with my manager, Brad Hunt, after that. And that's how we ended up getting signed. It's wow. just such an unlikely story. And, <laughs> and The pandemic so cool. did have some good things that came out of it, I guess. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> And Sam Perry, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this yet, so tell me yeah. no if you can't, but you are working on something that will be at a museum. Am I allowed to talk about that at all? You can say no, and then we can push this down the road to a future Fabulous 413. Well, uh, yes, yeah, so I'm, I am I will say this. I, uh, during the pandemic for me, I started working on solo ambient music that has um, developed into a piece that I will be working on, or that I am working on and is nearly finished at a museum, which I haven't really talked about publicly, so I don't really know. Okay. So I won't, yeah. We won't do it. But what you can talk about is that um, apart from being a musician, you are an excellent mixologist and were yes. a bartender at the Green Room. Correct. And we had a listener named Jamie who said in a question, apropos of exceedingly little, I moved to ask if you might probe your extensive network of informants, if not your personal knowledge, and obtain for me the recipe for the mixed drink, which the never-to-return Green Room bar called... Silver Tears and Sam Perry, you have that recipe for our listener, Jamie. I, I do, I do. So I, I don't think uh, I was there when they did that drink, but I messaged Bowen, who used to, run, you know, who ran the bar for many years, and I asked him, and he sent it to me. So here it is, lovely listener. Um, the Silver Tear is uh, 1.5 ounce of uh, Vita Mezcal, uh, one ounce of St. George uh, Green Chili uh, infused vodka, um, a quarter of an ounce of Charu Aloe liqueur and a quarter of an ounce of uh, Yuzuri Yuzu liqueur, uh, one dash of Reagan's Orange Bitters, and three drops of salt. Stir uh, uh, f uh, and put it a flamed lemon peel. Wow. So, go. Jamie, you're going to have to listen to the podcast over and over again because I'm not writing all that down. <laughs> um, we're going to do what is called playing us out. So we've only got a couple minutes left of the show. So Cloud Belly performing tonight at the Drake with Moxie, with Lux Deluxe. Cloud Belly will play us through to the end of the show until when I start doing the credits in a minute here. Let's hear one more from Cloud Belly. Thank you both so much. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Monty. <laughs> They can be so loud, the million miles of spring 
frozen dreams steaming off soft beginnings it's a bright shout thundering out a whisper in the cold hush of the sky gone quiet with all that snow falling on the river all that snow falling on the river snow falling on the river I went up in smoke next week on the next week on the show Amherst Hannah Mushebeck and her new children's book Homeland My Father Dreams of Palestine Hannah's father is the publisher of the local publishing company Interlink, and her uncle, who's also featured in the book, is the owner of Booklink Booksellers in Northampton. They'll join us Monday in a Mushabek mashup. We'll also have New York Times bestselling author and illustrator Mo Willems on the show next week. Play us out, Cloud Valley. Play us out. Our director is Tony. It's how steak is done. Our engineer is Betsy. It's free reverb Cordis. Our technical team is Bart, building the new studios Rankin. Kara, making sure I still have a studio here, Foster. And Punk Rock Dubay, who helped me test all the things today. Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, the Medicine Singers, the Carpenters, the Neville Brothers, Barbara Streisand and Barry Gibb, Moxie, Lux Deluxe, and Cloud Ballet, who are playing at the Drake in Amherst tonight. See you Monday in the fabulous 413.